Welcome back, everyone, to a new year and to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Our first story of the year, Garm, a hostage. It's a dog story that I think you'll enjoy very much. One night, a very long time ago, I drove to an Indian military cantonment called Mian Mir to see amateur theatricals. At the back of the infantry barracks, a soldier, his cap over one eye, rushed in front of the horses and shouted that he was a dangerous highway robber. As a matter of fact, he was a friend of mine, so I told him to go home before anyone caught him, but he fell under the pole, and I heard voices of a military guard in search of someone. The driver and I coaxed my friend to the carriage, drove home swiftly, undressed him and put him to bed, where he waked next morning with a sore headache, very much ashamed. When his uniform was cleaned and dried, and he had been shaved and washed and made neat, I drove him back to barracks with his arm in a fine white sling, and reported that I had accidentally run over him. I did not tell this story to my friend's sergeant, who was a hostile and unbelieving person, but to his lieutenant, who did not know us quite so well. Three days later my friend came to call, and at his heels slobbered and fawned one of the finest bull terriers of the old-fashioned breed, two parts bull and one part terrier, that I had ever set eyes on. He was pure white, with a fawn-colored saddle just behind his neck, and a fawn diamond at the root of his thin, whippy tail. I had admired him distantly for more than a year, and Vixen, my own fox terrier, knew him too, but did not approve. "'He's for you,' said my friend, but he did not look as though he liked parting with him. "'Nonsense! The dog's worth more than most men, Stanley,' I said. "'He's that more. Tangent! The dog rose on his hind legs and stood upright for a full minute. "'Eyes are right!' He sat on his haunches and turned his head sharp to the right. At a sign, he rose and barked thrice. Then he shook hands with his right paw and bounded lightly to my shoulder. Here he made himself into a necktie, limp and lifeless, hanging down on either side of my neck. I was told to pick him up and throw him in the air. He fell with a howl and held up one leg. "'Part of the trick,' said his owner. "'You're going to die now. Dig yourself a little grave and shut your little eye.' Still limping, the dog hobbled to the garden edge, dug a hole, and lay down in it. When told that he was cured, he jumped out, wagging his tail and whining for applause. He was put through half a dozen other tricks, such as showing how he would hold a man safe. I was that man, and he sat down before me, his teeth bared, ready to spring, and how he would stop eating at the word of command. I had no more than finished praising him when my friend made a gesture that stopped the dog as though he had been shot, took a piece of blue-ruled canteen paper from his helmet, handed it to me, and ran away, while the dog looked after him and howled. I read, Sir, I give you the dog because of what you got me out of. He is the best I know, for I have made him myself, and he is as good as a man. Please do not give him too much to eat, and please do not give him back to me, for I am not going to take him, if you will keep him. So please do not try to give him back any more. I have kept his name back, so you can call him anything and he will answer. But please do not give him back. He can kill a man as easy as anything, but please do not give him too much meat. He knows more than a man. My dog Vixen sympathetically joined her shrill little yap to the bull terrier's despairing cry, and I was annoyed, for I knew that a man who cares for dogs is one thing, but a man who loves one dog is quite another. Dogs are at the best no more than verminous vagrants, self-scratchers, foul feeders, and unclean by the law of Moses and Mohammed. But a dog with whom one lives alone for at least six months in the year, a free thing, "'tied to you so strictly by love "'that without you he will not stir or exercise. 
a patient, temperate, humorous, wise soul, who knows your moods before you know them yourself, is not a dog, under any ruling. I had Vixen, who was all my dog to me, and I felt what my friend must have felt, at tearing out his heart in this style and leaving it in my garden. However, the dog understood clearly enough that I was his master, and did not follow the soldier. As soon as he drew breath, I made much of him, and Vixen, yelling with jealousy, flew at him. Had she been of his own sex, he might have cheered himself with a fight, but he only looked worriedly when she nipped his deep iron sides, laid his heavy head on my knee, and howled anew. I meant to dine at the club that night, but as darkness drew in, and the dog snuffed through the empty house like a child trying to recover from a fit of sobbing, I felt that I could not leave him to suffer his first evening alone. So we fed at home, Vixen on one side, and the stranger dog on the other, she watching his every mouthful, and saying explicitly what she thought of his table manners, which were much better than hers. It was Vixen's custom, till the weather grew hot, to sleep in my bed, her head on the pillow like a Christian, and when morning came I would always find that the little thing embraced her feet against the wall and pushed me to the very edge of the cot. This night she hurried to bed purposely, every hair up, one eye on the stranger, who had dropped on a mat in a helpless, hopeless sort of way, all four feet spread out, sighing heavily. She settled her head on the pillow several times to show her little airs and graces and struck up her usual whiny sing-song before slumber. The stranger dog softly edged toward me. I put out my hand, and he licked it. Instantly my wrist was between Vixen's teeth, and her warning, Arr! said as plainly as speech that if I took any further notice of the stranger, she would bite. I caught her behind her fat neck with my left hand, shook her severely, and said, Vixen, if you do that again, you'll be put into the veranda. Now remember. She understood perfectly, but the minute I released her, she mouthed my right wrist once more, and waited with her ears back and all her body flattened ready to bite. The big dog's tail thumped the floor in a humble and peacemaking way. I grabbed Vixen a second time, lifted her out of bed like a rabbit. She hated that and yelled, and, as I had promised, set her out in the veranda with the bats in the moonlight. At this she howled. Then she used coarse language, not to me, but to the bull terrier, till she coughed with exhaustion. Then she ran round the house trying every door. Then she went off to the stables and barked as though someone were stealing the horses, which was an old trick of hers. At last she returned, and her snuffing yelp said, I'll be good, let me in, and I'll be good. She was admitted and flew to her pillow. When she was quieted, I whispered to the other dog, You can lie on the foot of the bed. The bull jumped up at once, and though I felt Vixen quiver with rage, she knew better now than to protest. So we slept till the morning, and they had early breakfast with me, bite for bite, till the horse came round and we went for a ride. I don't think the bull had ever followed a horse before. He was wild with excitement, and Vixen, as usual, squealed and scuttered and scooted and took charge of the procession. There was one corner of a village nearby, which we generally passed with caution, because all the yellow pariah dogs of the place gathered about it. They were half-wild, starving beasts, and though utter cowards, yet where nine or ten of them get together they will mob and kill and eat an English dog. I kept a whip with a long lash just for them. That morning they attacked Vixen, who, perhaps of design, had moved from beyond my horse's shadow. The bull was plowing along in the dust, fifty yards behind, rolling in his run, and smiling as bull terriers will. I heard Vixen squeal. Half a dozen of the curs closed in on her. A white streak came up behind me, 
"'A cloud of dust rose near Vixen, "'and when it cleared, "'I saw one tall pariah with his back broken, "'and the bull wrenching another to earth. "'Vixen retreated to the protection of my whip, "'and the bull paddled back smiling more than ever, "'covered with the blood of his enemies. "'That decided me to call him "'Garin of the Bloody Breast, "'who was a great person in his time, "'or Garm, for short. "'So, leaning forward, "'I told him what his temporary name would be. "'He looked up while I repeated it, "'and then raced away. "'I shouted, "'Garm!' "'He stopped, raced back, "'and came up to ask my will. "'Then I saw that my soldier friend was right, "'and that that dog knew "'and was worth more than a man. "'At the end of the ride "'I gave an order which Vixen knew and hated. "'Go away and get washed,' I said. "'Garm understood some part of it, "'and Vixen interpreted the rest, "'and the two trotted off together soberly.' When I went to the back veranda, Vixen had been washed snowy white, and was very proud of herself, but the dog boy would not touch Garm on any account unless I stood by. So I waited while he was being scrubbed, and Garm, with the soap creaming on top of his broad head, looked at me to make sure that this was what I expected him to endure. He knew perfectly that the dog boy was only obeying orders. "'Another time,' I said to the dog boy, "'you will wash the great dog with Vixen when I send them home.' "'Does he know?' said the dog-boy, who understood the ways of dogs. "'Garm,' I said, "'another time you will be washed with Vixen.' I knew that Garm understood. Indeed, next washing day, when Vixen as usual fled under my bed, Garm stared at the doubtful dog-boy in the veranda, stalked to the place where he had been washed last time, and stood rigid in the tub. But the long days in my office tried him sorely. We three would drive off in the morning at half-past eight and come home at six or later. Vixen, knowing the routine of it, went to sleep under my table, but the confinement ate into Garm's soul. He generally sat on the veranda looking out at the mall, and well I knew what he expected. Sometimes a company of soldiers would move along their way to the fort, and Garm rolled forth to inspect them, or an officer in uniform entered into the office, and it was pitiful to see poor Garm's welcome to the cloth, not the man. He would leap at him and sniff and bark joyously, then run to the door and back again. One afternoon I heard him bay with a full throat, a thing I had never heard before, and he disappeared. When I drove into my garden at the end of the day, a soldier in white uniform scrambled over the wall at the far end, and the garm that met me was a joyous dog. This happened two or three times a week for a month. I pretended not to notice, but garm knew and vixen knew. He would glide homewards from the office about four o'clock, as though he were only going to look at the scenery, and this he did so quietly that but for Vixen I should not have noticed him. The jealous little dog under the table would give a sniff and a snort, just loud enough to call my attention to the flight. Garm might go out forty times in the day, and Vixen would never stir, but when he slunk off to see his true master in my garden, she told me in her own tongue. That was the one sign she made to prove that Garm did not altogether belong to the family. They were the best of friends at all times, but Vixen explained that I was never to forget Garm did not love me as she loved me. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. I never expected it. The dog was not my dog, could never be my dog, and I knew he was as miserable as his master who tramped eight miles a day to see him. So it seemed to me that the sooner the two were reunited, the better for all. One afternoon I sent Vixen home alone in the dog cart, Garm had gone before, and rode over to Cantonments to find another friend of mine, who was an Irish soldier and a great friend of the dog's master. I explained the whole case, and wound up with, 
"'And now Stanley's in my garden crying over his dog. "'Why doesn't he take him back? "'They're both unhappy.' "'Unhappy? "'There's no sense in the little man any more. "'But tis his fit.' "'What is his fit? "'He travels fifty miles a week to see the brute, "'and he pretends not to notice me when he sees me on the road, "'and I'm as unhappy as he is. "'Make him take the dog back.' "'It's his penance,' he said himself. "'I told him by the way of a joke. "'After you'd run over him so convenient that night, when he was drunk, "'I said if he was a Catholic he'd do penance. "'Off he went with that fit in his little head and a dose of fever, "'and nothing would suit but giving you the dog as a hostage.' "'A hostage for what? "'I don't want hostages from Stanley.' "'For his good behavior. "'He's keeping straight now. "'And by the way, it's no pleasure to associate with him.' "'Has he taken the pledge?' "'If t'was only that, I need not care. "'You can take the pledge for three months on and off. "'He says he'll never see the dog again, "'and so, mark you, he'll keep straight forevermore. "'You know his fits? "'Well, this is one of them. "'How's the dog taking it?' "'Well, he's taking it like a man. "'He's the best dog in India. "'Can't you make Stanley take him back?' Oh, "'I could do no more than I've done. "'But you know his fits. "'He's just doing his penance.' "'What will he do when he goes to the hills? "'The doctors put him on the list.' "'It's the custom in India to send a certain number of invalids "'from each regiment up to stations in the Himalayas for the hot weather, "'and though the men ought to enjoy the cool and the comfort, "'they miss the society of the barracks down below "'and do their best to come back or avoid going in the first place. "'I felt that this move would bring matters to a head, "'so I left Terence hopefully. "'Though he called after me, "'He won't take the dog, sir. "'You can lay your much pay on it.' "'You know his fits.' "'I never pretended to understand Private Ortheris, "'and so I did the next best thing. "'I left him alone. "'That summer the invalids of the regiment "'to which my friend belonged "'were ordered off to the hills early "'because the doctors thought marching in the cool of the day "'would do them good. "'Their route lay south to a place called Umbalia, "'a hundred and twenty miles or more. "'Then they would turn east and march up into the hills "'to Kasali or Dugshai or Sabatu.' I dined with the officers the night before they left. They were marching at five in the morning. It was midnight when I drove into my garden and surprised a white figure flying over the wall. "'That man,' said my butler, "'has been here since nine. Make him talk to that dog. He's quite mad. I did not tell him to go away because he's been here many times before and because my dog boy told me that if I told him to go away that great dog would immediately slay me. He did not wish to speak to the protector of the poor.' "'and he did not ask for anything to eat or drink. "'Kadir Butch,' said I, "'that was well done, "'for the dog would surely have killed thee, "'but I do not think the white soldier will come any more. "'Garm slept ill that night and whimpered in his dreams. "'Once he sprang up with a clear ringing bark "'and heard him wag his tail till it waked him "'and the bark died out in a howl. "'He had dreamed he was with his master again, "'and I nearly cried. "'It was all Stanley's silly fault.' The first halt which the detachment of invalids made was some miles from their barracks, on the Amritsar Road, and ten miles distant from my house. By a mere chance, one of the officers drove back for another good dinner at the club. Cooking on the line of the march is always bad, and there I met him. He was a particular friend of mine, and I knew that he knew how to love a dog properly. His pet was a big fat retriever who was going up to the hills for his health, and though it was still April, the round brown brute puffed and panted in the club veranda as though he would burst. "'It's amazing,' said the officer. "'What excuses these invalids of mine make to get back to the barracks? 
"'There's a man in my company now "'asked me for leave to go back to the cantonments "'to pay a debt he'd forgotten. "'I was so taken by the idea, I let him go, "'and he jingled off in an echo as pleased as bunch. Ten miles to pay a debt. "'Wonder what it was, really.' "'If you drive me home, I think I can show you,' I said. "'So he went over to my house in his dog cart with the retriever, "'and on the way I told him the story of Garm. "'I was wondering where that brute had gone to,' he said. "'He's the best dog in the regiment,' said my friend. "'I offered the little fellow twenty rupees for him a month ago. "'But he's a hostage, you say, for Stanley's good conduct? "'Stanley's one of the best men I have when he chooses.' "'That's the reason why.' I said, a second-rate man wouldn't have taken things to heart as he has done. We drove in quietly at the far end of the garden, and crept round the house. There was a place close to the wall, all grown about with tamarisk trees, where I knew Garm kept his bones. Even Vixen was not allowed to sit near it. In the full Indian moonlight I could see a white uniform bending over the dog. "'Good-bye, old man.' We couldn't help hearing Stanley's voice. "'For heaven's sake, don't get bet and go mad by any measly pie-dog. "'But you can look after yourself, old man. "'You don't get drunk and run about hitting your friends. "'You takes your bones and eats your biscuit, "'and you kills your enemy like a gentleman. "'I'm going away. Don't owl. "'I'm going off to Casali, where I won't see you no more.' "'I could hear him holding Garm's nose "'as the dog threw it up to the stars. "'You stay here and behave, "'and I'll go away and try to behave.' "'and I don't know how to leave you. "'I don't know.' "'I think this is damn silly,' said the officer, "'patting his foolish, fubsy old retriever. "'He called to the private, who leaped to his feet, "'marched forward and saluted. "'You here?' said the officer, turning away his head. "'Yes, sir, but I'm just going back. "'I shall be leaving here at eleven in my cart. "'You come with me. "'I can't have sick men running about all over the place. "'Report yourself at eleven, right here.' We did not say much when we went indoors, but the officer muttered and pulled his retriever's ears. He was a disgraceful, overfed doormat of a dog, and when he waddled off to my cookhouse to be fed, I had a brilliant idea. At eleven o'clock that officer's dog was nowhere to be found, and you never heard such a fuss as his owner made. He called and shouted and grew angry, and hunted through my garden for half an hour. Then I said, "'He's sure to turn up in the morning.' "'Send a man in by rail, and I'll find the beast and return him.' "'Beast?' said the officer. "'I value that dog considerably more than I value any man I know. "'It's all very fine for you to talk. "'Your dog's here.' "'And so she was, under my feet. "'And, had she been missing, food and wages would have stopped in my house till her return. "'But some people grow fond of dogs not worth the cut of the whip. "'My friend had to drive away at last with Stanley in the back seat.' "'And then the dog-boy said to me, "'What kind of animal is Bullen Sahib's dog? "'Look at him!' "'I went to the boy's hut, "'and the fat old reprobate was lying on a mat "'carefully chained up. "'He must have heard his master calling for twenty minutes, "'but had not even attempted to join him. "'He has no face,' said the dog-boy scornfully. "'He's a punier cooter,' meaning a spaniel. "'He never tried to get that cloth off his jaws "'when his master called. "'Now Bixen would have jumped through the window.' "'and that great dog would have slain me with his muzzled mouth. "'It is true that there are many kinds of dogs. "'Next evening who should turn up but Stanley? "'The officer had sent him back fourteen miles by rail "'with a note begging me to return the retriever if I had found him, "'and if I had not, offer huge rewards. "'The last train to camp left at half-past ten, "'and Stanley stayed till ten talking to Garm. 
I argued and entreated, and even threatened to shoot the bull terrier. But the little man was as firm as a rock, though I gave him a good dinner and talked to him most severely. Garm knew as well as I that this was the last time he could hope to see his man, and followed Stanley like a shadow. The retriever said nothing, but licked his lips after his meal and waddled off without so much as saying, Thank you, to the disgusted dog boy. So that last meeting was over, and I felt as wretched as Garm, who moaned in his sleep all night. When we went to the office he found a place under the table close to Vixen, and dropped flat till it was time to go home. There was no more running out to the verandas, no slinking away for stolen talks with Stanley. As the weather grew warmer, the dogs were forbidden to run beside the cart, but sat at my side on the seat, Vixen with her head under the crook of my left elbow, and Garm hugging the left handrail. Here Vixen was ever in great form. She had to attend to all the moving traffic, such as bullock carts that blocked the way, and camels, and lead ponies, as well as to keep up her dignity when she passed low friends running in the dust. She never yapped for yapping's sake, but her shrill high bark was known all along the mall, and other men's terriers kayied in reply, and bullock drivers looked over their shoulders and gave us the road with a grin. But Garm cared for none of these things. His big eyes were on the horizon, and his terrible mouth was shut. There was another dog in the office who belonged to my chief. We called him Bob the Librarian, because he always imagined vain rats behind the bookshelves, and in hunting for them would drag out half the old newspaper files. Bob was a well-meaning idiot, but Garm did not encourage him. He would slide his head round the door, panting, "'Rats! Come along, Garm!' and Garm would shift one forepaw over the other and curl himself round, leaving Bob to whine at a most uninterested back. The office was nearly as cheerful as a tomb in those days. Once and only once did I see Garm at all contented with his surroundings. He had gone for an unauthorized walk with Vixen early one Sunday morning, and a very young and foolish artilleryman, his battery had just moved to that part of the world, tried to steal them both. Vixen, of course, knew better than to take food from soldiers, and besides, she had just finished her breakfast. So she trotted back with a large piece of the mutton that they issued to our troops, laid it down on my veranda, and looked up to see what I thought. I asked her where Garm was, and she ran in front of the horse to show me the way. About a mile up the road we came across our artilleryman sitting very stiffly on the edge of the culvert with a greasy handkerchief on his knees. Garm was in front of him, looking rather pleased. When the man moved leg or hand, Garm bared his teeth in silence. A broken string hung from his collar, and the other half of, it lay, all warm, in the artilleryman's still hand. He explained to me, keeping his eyes straight in front of him, that he had met this dog, he called him awful names, walking alone, and was going to take him to the fort to be killed for a masterless pariah. I said that Garm did not seem to be much of a pariah, but that he had better take him to the fort if he thought best. He said he did not care to do so. I told him to go to the fort alone. He said that he did not want to go at that hour, but would follow my advice as soon as I had called off the dog. I instructed Garm to take him to the fort, and Garm marched him solemnly up to the gate, one mile and a half under a hot sun, and I told the quarter guard what had happened. But the young artilleryman was more angry than was at all necessary when they began to laugh. Several regiments, he was told, had tried to steal Garm in their time. That month the hot weather shut down in earnest, and the dog slept in the bathroom on the cool wet bricks where the bath is placed. Every morning, as soon as the man filled my bath, the two jumped in, and every morning the man filled the bath the second time. I said to him that he might as well fill a small tub especially for the dogs. Nay, said he, smiling, it is not their custom. They would not understand. 
"'Besides, the big bath gives them more space.' "'The punka coolies who pull the punkas day and night "'came to know Garm intimately. "'He noticed that when the swain fan stopped, "'I would call out to the coolie and bid him pull with a long stroke. "'If the man still slept, I would wake him up. "'He discovered, too, that it was a good thing "'to lie in the wave of air under the punka. "'Maybe Stanley had taught him all about this in the barracks. "'At any rate, when the punka stopped, "'Garm would first growl and cock his eye at the rope, "'and if that did not wake the man, it nearly always did.' "'he would tiptoe forth and talk in the sleeper's ear. "'Vixen was a clever little dog, "'but she could never connect the punka and the coolie, "'so Garm gave me grateful hours of cool sleep. "'But he was utterly wretched, "'as miserable as a human being, "'and in his misery he clung so closely to me "'that other men noticed it, and were envious. "'If I moved from one room to another, Garm followed. "'If my pen stopped scratching, "'Garm's head was thrust into my hand.' If I turned, half awake, on the pillow, Garm was up and at my side, for he knew that I was his only link with his master, and day and night, and night and day, his eyes asked one question. When is this going to end? Living with the dog as I did, I never noticed that he was more than ordinarily upset by the hot weather, till one day at the club a man said, That dog of yours will die in a week or two. He's a shadow. Then I dosed Garm with iron and quinine, which he hated, and I felt very anxious. He lost his appetite, and Vixen was allowed to eat his dinner under his eyes. Even that did not make him swallow, and we held a consultation on him, of the best man-doctor in the place, a lady doctor, who cured the sick wives of kings, and the deputy inspector general of the veterinary service of all India. They pronounced upon his symptoms, and I told them his story, and Garm lay on a sofa licking my hand. "'He's dying of a broken heart,' said the lady doctor suddenly. "'Bomb my word,' said the deputy inspector general. "'I believe Mrs. McRae is perfectly right as usual.' The best man doctor in the place wrote a prescription, and the veterinary deputy inspector general went over it afterwards to be sure that the drugs were in the proper dog proportions, and that was the first time in his life that our doctor ever allowed his prescriptions to be edited. It was a strong tonic, and it put the dear boy on his feet for a week or two. "'but then he lost flesh again. "'I asked a man I knew to take him up to the hills with him when he went, "'and the man came to the door with his kit packed on top of the carriage. "'Garm took in the situation at one red glance. "'The hair rose along his back. "'He sat down in front of me and delivered the most awful growl "'I've ever heard in the jaws of a dog. "'I shouted to my friend to get away at once, "'and as soon as the carriage was out of the garden, "'Garm laid his head on my knee and whined. "'So I knew his answer.' "'and devoted myself to getting Stanley's address in the hills. "'My turn to go to the cool came late in August. "'We were allowed thirty days' holiday in a year, "'if no one fell sick, and we took it as we could be spared. "'My chief and Bob the librarian had their holiday first, "'and when they were gone I made a calendar, as I always did, "'and hung it up at the head of my cot, "'tearing off one day at a time till they returned. "'Vixen had gone up to the hills with me five times before, "'and she appreciated the cold and the damp "'and the beautiful wood-fires there as much as I did. "'Garm,' I said, "'we're going back to Stanley at Casali. "'Casali, Stanley. "'Stanley, Casali. "'And I repeated it twenty times. "'It was not Casali, really, but another place. "'Still I remembered what Stanley had said in my garden on the last night, "'and I dared not change the name. "'Then Garm began to tremble, and then he barked, "'and then he leaped up at me, frisking and wagging his tail.' "'Not now,' I said, holding up my hand. 
When I say, go, we'll go, Garm. I pulled out the little blanket coat and spiked collar that Vixen always wore up in the hills to protect her against the sudden chills and thieving leopards, and I let the two smell them and talk it over. What they said, of course, I do not know, but it made a new dog of Garm. His eyes were bright, and he barked joyfully when I spoke to him. He ate his food, and he killed his rats for the next three weeks, and when he began to whine, I had only to say, Stanley, Casale, Casale, Stanley, to wake him up. I wish I'd thought of it before. Chief came back, all brown with living in the open air, and very angry at finding it so hot in the plains. That same afternoon, we three and Kadir Bush began to pack for a month's holiday, Vixen rolling in and out of the bullock truck twenty times a minute, and Garm grinning all over and thumping on the floor with his tail. Vixen knew the routine of traveling as well as she knew my office work. She went to the station, singing songs, on the front seat of the carriage, while Garm sat with me. She hurried into the railway carriage, saw Kadir Bush make up my bed for the night, got her drink of water, and curled up with her black patch eye on the tumult of the platform. Garm followed her. The crowd gave him a lane all to himself, and sat down on the pillows with his eyes blazing and his tail a haze behind him. We came to Umbala in the hot, misty dawn, four or five men, who had been working hard for eleven months, shouting for our dales, the two horse-traveling carriages that were to take us up to Kalka at the foot of the hills. It was all new to Garm. He did not understand carriages where you lay at full length on your bedding, but Vixen knew and hopped into her place at once, Garm following. The Kalka road, before the railway was built, was about forty-seven miles long, and the horses were changed every eight miles. Most of them jibbed and kicked and plunged, but they had to go, and they went rather better than usual for Garm's deep bay in their rear. There was a river to be forded, and four bullocks pulled the carriage, and Vixen stuck her head out of the sliding door and nearly fell into the water while she gave directions. Garm was silent and curious, and rather needed reassuring about Stanley and Casale. So we rolled, barking and yelping, into Kalka for lunch, and Garm ate enough for two. After Kalka, the road would be among the hills, and we took a curricle with half-broken ponies, which were changed every six miles. No one dreamed of a railroad to Simla in those days, for it was 7,000 feet up in the air. The road was more than 50 miles long, and the regulation pace was just as fast as the ponies could go. Here again, Vixen led Garm from one carriage to the other, jumped into the back seat, and shouted. A cool breath from the snows met us about five miles out of Kalka, and she whined for her coat, "'wisely fearing a chill on the liver. "'I had had one made for Garm, too, "'and as we climbed to the fresh breezes, I put it on, "'and Garm chewed it uncomprehendingly. "'But I think he was grateful. "'Yip, yip, yip!' sang Vixen as we shot round the curves. "'Toot, toot, toot!' went the driver's bugle at the dangerous places, "'and yow, yow!' bade Garm. "'Kadir Bush sat on the front seat and smiled. "'Even he was glad to get away from the heat of the plains "'that stewed in the haze behind us. Now and then we would meet a man we knew going down to his work again, and he would say, "'What's it like below?' and I would shout, "'Hotter than cinders! What's it like above?' and he would shout back, "'Just perfect!' and away we would go. Suddenly Kadir Bush said over his shoulder, "'Here's Solon!' and Garm snored where he lay with his head on my knee. Solon is an unpleasant little cantonment, but it has the advantage of being cool and healthy. It is all bare and windy, "'and one generally stops at a rest house nearby for something to eat. "'I got out and took both dogs with me, while Kadir Bush made tea. "'A soldier told us we should find Stanley—' 
out there, nodding his head towards a bare, bleak hill. When we climbed to the top, we spied that very Stanley, who had given me all this trouble, sitting on a rock with his face in his hands, and his overcoat hanging loose about him. I never saw anything so lonely and dejected in my life as this one little man, crumpled up and thinking, on the great gray hillside. Here Garm left me. He departed without a word, and, so far as I could see, without moving his legs. He flew through the air bodily, and I heard the whack of him as he flung himself at Stanley, knocking the little man clean over. They rolled on the ground together, shouting and yelping and hugging. I could not see which was dog and which was man, till Stanley got up and whimpered. He told me that he had been suffering from fever at intervals, and was very weak. He looked all he said, but even while I watched, both man and dog plumped out to their natural sizes, precisely as dried apples swell in water. Garm was on his shoulder, and his breast and feet all at the same time, so that Stanley spoke all through a cloud of Garm, gulping, sobbing, slavering Garm. He did not say anything that I could understand, except that he had fancied that he was going to die, but that now he was quite well, and that he was not going to give up Garm any more to anybody under the rank of Beelzebub. Then he said he felt hungry and thirsty and happy. We went down to tea at the rest house where Stanley stuffed himself with sardines and raspberry jam and beer and cold mutton and pickles when Garm wasn't climbing over him and then Vixen and I went on. Garm saw how it was at once. He said goodbye to me three times giving me both paws one after another and leaping onto my shoulder. He further escorted us singing hosannas at the top of his voice a mile down the road. Then he raced back to his own master. Vixen never opened her mouth, but when the cold twilight came and we could see the lights of Simla across the hills, she snuffled with her nose at the breast of my ulster. I unbuttoned it and tucked her inside. Then she gave a contented little sniff and fell fast asleep, her head on my breast, till we bundled out at Simla, two of the four happiest people in all the world that night. Thanks for joining us for this great story from Rudyard Kipling. We love reviews, and we've had some wonderful reviews lately I'd like to share with you. The first one, five stars. Brighton's Sister-in-Law. A sensitive story of a young man and his disabled son left me wanting to read more by this fine Australian author. Thank you for the excellent reading of this special tale. Down from S.E. Bush, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one. Well worth binging and sharing. Five stars. Just found this and ceased listening to any other podcasts until I get caught up. This is really a fantastic effort. Any reviews less than four stars would be from a sad and grumpy person. Binge and share. Binge and share. That one from Catholic Number 2 at Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one. Five stars. Love these classics. I have so little time to devote to read these timeless stories, and now I have an amazing door into the classics chosen and read by John, a terrific storyteller and a wonderful host. I'm sold. Down from Nana Grape, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Awesome stories. Love this podcast. I've been searching for a show with classic stories. This collection is an answer to my prayers. The host is a great storyteller, and you can tell he puts a lot of effort into the production. Thank you so much. Down from BV2447, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so much for taking the time to write these reviews. They help new listeners find us, and we appreciate them very, very much. Thank you. It's going to be a great year here at 1001, everyone. 
so look forward to a lot more classic short stories from us, from a wide range of authors. We'll return with a brand new episode next Sunday night, a little after 6 p.m. And I always say 8 p.m., but it's actually a little after 6 p.m. Sunday nights that we're able to deliver these. So everyone, thanks for joining us. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.